This is the Ottoman History Podcast, and I'm Chris Grayton. This episode features a new history of the Black Death. Our guest is Monica Green. What happens um, when you die, when anything, any living thing dies, is the DNA starts breaking down. But what they were experimenting with were mechanisms to retrieve the fragments of the DNA. And if you have fragments that are long enough, you can say, okay, this belongs to a particular organism. You basically, what you're doing is you're putting one fragment of DNA and trying to see if you can find another fragment that overlaps with it, that has at least partial overlap. And then you do that with another, and you do that with another, and you do that with another. And uh, when you get reconstructions of a certain length, they are uh, distinctive. You can say, okay, this is a banana, or this is an ant, or this is a particular single-celled bacterium called Yersinia pestis. And the first announcement that uh, Yersinia pestis had been retrieved from a plague burial site uh, came in 1998. And for the most part, it was, um, the findings were only talked about by biologists for a number of years. I came into the scene around 2005, 2006, and they were bickering madly. So I was just you know, sitting back with my popcorn and saying, okay, I'm just gonna watch. Um, this debate unfolded, and that's what I did. And by 2010, and definitively by 2011, they had resolved enough of their own disputes to come up with some really strong um, assertions. And what happened in 2011 was a group working from the Black Death Cemetery in London retrieved um, what they said were two um, genotypes of Yersinia pestis. They uh, got good samples from four individuals who were buried in, um, uh, in 14th century uh, London in, in uh, a particular burial spot. And three of them were identical, showing the same um, genotype, and then the fourth was, uh, was, was different. Um, so this was 2011 when they published uh, this study saying, we've got the full genome of Yersinia pestis. It 100% is, and because we have the whole genome and not simply a partial genome, we can speak with some authority about how this genome compares to the modern genome of Yersinia pestis. Roughly a decade ago, scientists settled a question that had long plagued historians. Was the 14th century Black Death caused by the same bacteria, Yersinia pestis, that causes the modern disease we know as bubonic plague? The answer was yes. And that was arguably the most important development in our understanding of the history of the Black Death, the most deadly pandemic in the known history of Europe. That is, perhaps, until now. Because as our guest Monica Green has recently shown, what historians have long assumed about the bubonic plague spread was mistaken. The Eurasian story that, again, as I said, has, has been posited for, for, well, actually for uh, almost a century now, it's been speculated that there was a um, Central Eurasian origin for the Black Death. 
That is true. What's not true is the chronology. The Black Death phenomenon, this spread of plague, started a century, uh, almost a century and a half earlier than we previously believed. It spread farther than uh, we previously believed. In her recent article entitled The Four Black Deaths, Green argues that prior to the Black Death of the 14th century, outbreaks of plague coinciding with the Mongol conquests of the 13th century occurred. That's how we get the four Black Deaths. It's moving into four um, different new areas. It's moving into Siberia, it's moving into Mongolia, it's moving into China, um, and then it's moving westward um, into the Caucasus and then into um, the Middle East, Europe, and potentially Africa um, as well. Monica Green's groundbreaking article on the spread of plague during the 13th century has exposed the perils of the Eurocentric narrative that has prevailed, and it's rewriting both Mongol history and the history of pandemics writ large. I am trying to expand the map and the chronology of what we have in our heads as the late medieval plague pandemic. If you want to learn more about Monica Green's research, See our link to the four black deaths published in the American Historical Review, as well as a recently published article co-authored with Nahian Fansi entitled Plague and the Fall of Baghdad. This podcast is based on a conversation Professor Green and I had over Zoom during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in January 2021. We'll talk about how Monica Green, whose work on the history of science and medicine had otherwise focused on Europe, came to discover this important piece of Mongol history and indeed world history, and reflect on its significance. But in doing so, we'll also reconstruct how the historiography of plague has developed. The story takes us back to the aftermath of the Black Death in 14th century Europe. I am a historian of medieval Europe. The Black Death, uh, as traditionally defined, uh, plays a huge role in histories of Europe, um, in histories of Western civilization, um, however people wanted to define that. And it is usually told, the story is usually told in what I call the Boccaccio narrative. So Giovanni uh, Boccaccio is uh, an Italian writer who writes his his Decamera in in the years after the main wave of the Black Death hits in the late 1340s. And he's, he's a writer. <laughs> so, um, you know, a, a phenomenal um, a creator of a scenario of terror and death and um, social disruption. And it's an incredibly powerful story uh, with which he opens the Decameron. And it's become a fixture of, of our, the narratives that we carry around in our head about what the Black Death is. Um, and it is a, it's a, a basically a European narrative. Most people, I think, um, have a sense now um, because of a, um, a, a, a slight broadening in the amount of available literature that uh, the Black Death also struck the Middle East and North Africa. So it's uh, essentially told as a story that comes out of the Black Sea, is transmitted uh, via a ship into the Mediterranean, and then spreads all all the way around the Mediterranean and and then into Europe. And that's the story I learned. That's the story um, everybody learned. That's the story that 
is usually conveyed in uh, maps that are shown, and there's um, millions. Um, might be a slight exaggeration, but there are a lot of maps um, available that you can find on, on the internet at, at any time and in textbooks all over the place. So that's the story that we have always told. But if you look at those maps, there are blank spaces on those maps. And the blank spaces are on the eastern edge of the map. So what is east of Europe? What is east of, of the Black Sea? Um, and it is also blank below the edge of the Mediterranean um, in, uh, in Africa. And I did an earlier piece uh, several years ago on uh, filling in some of the, the, the Africa story. The, the present essay takes up some of the arguments that I made there. And that is, where's the rest of the map? And, and, and just to stress, for, to, to, to help people visualize in their heads, if they uh, pull up one of those black death maps and, and, and look at the topography, they will see that um, they just stop at a certain point in Russia, uh, in maybe Iraq, for example, in terms of the eastern border of those, those maps. If you look at a topographic map, you'll see that there's no natural limit there. There's not, there's not an ocean there, there's not, you know, kind of a massively high mountain range that would impede the spread of a disease that's moving through rodents. The Black Death justifiably looms large in the history of Europe. But just looking at a map of its spread in the medieval world, which we still don't fully understand, there's no reason why Europe should be at the center of its history. Like many topics in global history, the narrative of plague has been overly Eurocentric, sidelining equally momentous outbreaks in Asia and Africa. And it's also been overly anthropocentric, focusing on human dynamics while ignoring environmental factors and the very animals, rodents and fleas, that are responsible for its spread. Oh, and that's one of the things that that is absolutely crucial to keep in mind about uh, plague is it's not a human disease. That sounds um, contradictory um, in the sense that it's killed millions of people. Um, throughout history, but it's not a human disease. It doesn't take humans as its natural reservoir. Um, It doesn't survive, it doesn't persist year after year, century after century, because it's it's moving through human communities. It persists because it is a rodent disease and subsists through those um, various kinds of rodent populations. So the question is, the rodents wouldn't have had any limitation um, if, if this is being spread simply um, by rodents. So, so really the question boils down to what's on the other side of that edge of, of the map. The geography of plague had long signaled that Central Asia was a possible center. And from the 1950s onward, concrete evidence to support this hunch grew. The World Health Organization, uh, which had just recently been established had assigned its plague specialist, um, his name was Robert Pulitzer, and he, in, in writing out his, his, uh, his few paragraphs where he was summarizing the history of plague, he mentioned, oh, and I happened to find the archaeological report of these archaeologists who were working in um, uh, an area that's now modern uh, Kyrgyzstan, 
who reported uh, headstones that they found, um, medieval headstones, which uh, many of which were actually dated to the years 1338 and 1339. And apparently the headstones were, it was assumed, were the result of an epidemic. And a lot of people died um, in, in a very short period of time. And a handful of those tombstones mentioned, and this person died of plague. They're written in Syriac. This is a community of Christians who are living in, in Central Asia. And they, they write these headstones in Syriac um, and then use the, the Syriac word for, for plague. So he found this archaeological report and he said, aha, 1338 is um, a decade before the, the main onset of, of the Black Death in uh, Western Eurasia. This must be the origin for plague. And this accorded with, um, uh, again, the Bokachian narrative Basically, we have a, um, a massive amount of, of, of literature in Latin, in French, in Italian, in Arabic. Um, uh, we have no shortage of evidence, documentary evidence, that the Black Death happened, that the Boccaccio narrative um, was true. And most of that is dated. It's, it's um, very precisely dated. And so we've, um, we've always had this 1336 um, the beginning of the outbreak in the Golden Horde, which is the Mongol entity that is uh, uh, controlling um, southwest Russia at this point. Uh, the first outbreak is in 1346 in the Golden Horde and then spreading uh, westward from there. And so Pulitzer looked at the Isokul, that's the, the name of this area where the um, archaeological uh, 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 dig happened. And he said, ah, Issaquil is east of the Golden Horde. Um, this uh, cemetery, well, it wasn't really a cemetery. It was, it was the, 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 the gravestones, um, are documenting what seems to be a plague outbreak 10 years earlier. So this must be the origin of the Black Death. In the 1970s, uh, William McNeil wrote what is still, for many, many people, the only book on, on um, epidemiological history that they've, they've ever read. It's called Plagues and Peoples. That came in in 1976. And he went through, or he had colleagues go through some uh, Chinese literature for him. And he saw, okay, well, there's all of this evidence in China for, um, and this was, um, of course, Mongol China at the time, um, all of this evidence uh, for what seems to be um, a plague in, in Mongol China. Actually, they're, they're, they're really just called epidemics um, uh, without any distinguishing features that, that would, would allow anybody to say specifically that they're plague, aside from them, the, the, the mass mortality. But anyway, he said, oh, well, I think I have found evidence for the emergence of, of plague in southeast China in the late 13th century. So the Mongols come into Southeast China and they disturb what he thought was a plague reservoir in the Himalayas. And he thought plague stayed in China um, for several more decades and then in the 1330s started breaking out. So um, whether people said it started with Isakul or like McNeil, it started in China, they were all assuming a very, very short time span. 
and then this very swift um, uh, westward movement across Eurasia. Breadcrumbs were leading scholars back to the heartlands of the Mongol Empire, which at its height controlled much of Russia, China, and the Islamic world. But a familiar path led them astray. If you go back to your map and look at a whole map of Eurasia, Eurasia is actually right quite big. And particularly the, the route that they were expecting is across the northern steppe. And I had always looked at that and said, um, that's a lot. And, people, and, then, and then people would say, oh, and then, well, what is the mechanism of transmission? It's the Silk Road. I mean, it's just like basically anybody has any kind of question about central Eurasia, they say, the Silk Road. The Silk Road. The Silk Road. As I already said, plague is not a human disease. Um, it actually is very, very efficient in killing us. And uh, we are not very good in terms of, you know, person to person to person, a long distance, a long chain of transmission, um, precisely because it is so good at killing us. Um, and, um, and particularly the way there is a mechanism um, of spread from human to human, and that's pneumonic plague. Someone gets, uh, the, uh, they're infected with, with plague and it spreads into their lungs and then they cough, they sneeze. Um, onto someone who is very close by. So this would basically be droplet transmission. So someone who's taking care of you. Um, uh, uh, this would be sick, sickbed transmission. Transmission to other people in, in one's household um, would have been common. But the thing is, is pneumonic plague. Pneumonic plague kills you in about six to ten days. Pneumonic plague kills you in two to three days. Probably by the, the, the second day that you're showing any symptoms, you're so sick that you're not going to be moving very much. So basically, if you're, if you're trying to make an argument of a scenario of long-distance spread, a very quick spread, you would want to think that it's happening through a very densely populated area because you need lots of people to be um, transmitting it, and they need to be close enough that you can have them dying very quickly, but still transmitting um, to somebody. Again, if you look at the map of Northern Eurasia, even for the, uh, what we can construct of the trade routes at the time, it's not a populated um, region. There are long stretches of really desert areas. Yes, there is trade moving, still moving through uh, this region, but it's not necessarily the main route of trade, um, even in the, uh, the 14th century. As obvious as its historical impact was, for a long time, the story of the Black Death spread simply didn't add up. As a teacher, I have to tell a story. And I want to tell a story that's um, persuasive. Uh, I want to uh, uh, tell a story that I actually believe. I never taught a course on the Black Death until... Uh, eight, eight years ago, precisely because I didn't have a good story to tell. I felt I can't tell, I can't uh, ask students to spend a whole semester studying the Black Death. And all it is is, is telling Boccaccian stories of woe without being able to explain what is happening. So it was a field riddled with questions, but it had more questions than avenues for answering them. And I found that exasperating. 
Um, and I just felt uh, this is not something I would, an experience I would want to share with my students. Having to spend an entire semester saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Though much was written about it, for a long time, historians seemed to be drifting further from certainty in their understanding of plague. They began to question whether the assumed link between the medieval Black Death and modern plague was mistaken, given the apparently vast differences in how they manifested in perils of retrospective diagnosis based on modern biomedical knowledge. But using samples from plague burial sites, most notably the sequencing of plague genomes from the aforementioned Black Death site in London that we started off this podcast with, Scientists eventually put that historical debate to rest. I heard that microbiologists were attempting to answer the what was it question. Not questions about geography, not questions about chronology or anything, but just answer the question, was it really plague um, or not? This, this um, disease we know now is caused by Yersinia pestis. And this is where we get into the genetics because we have the whole genome and not simply a partial genome, we can speak with some authority about how this genome compares to the modern genome of Yersinia pestis, which, and this is the other part of the story, is there's a massive amounts of modern scientific work on Yersinia pestis. Why? Because Yersinia pestis is still a very lethal disease. Yersinia pestis is found on four of the five inhabited continents in the world today. It is still considered um, a major potential bioterrorism threat. So there's actually a huge amount of, of scientific work um, that's been done on Yersinia pestis. What the study that came out in 2011 did was said, hey, now we know what the 14th century version of this looked like, so we can compare it to all the modern versions that we have. And what they said was, it's not that different. And first of all, on a, on a basic level, that's really scary. The same organism, essentially the same organism that caused the massive mortality of the 14th century was still capable of causing uh, similar damage to human populations in, in the present day world. So that means if it's causing those levels of mortality, then probably we have to look at other factors that we can't just simply say it was a more lethal organism. Um, there must have been some other factors that was allowing this very lethal organism to spread as widely as it did. Okay, so the, the genetics immediately, well, after this kind of slow buildup, but by 2011, the um, gen genetics may put itself on the map in terms of a field that was contributing incredibly important historical knowledge about this disease. Genetics opened up the possibility to not only compare the past with the present, but also chart a chronology of Yersinia pestis' evolution as a bacteria. I also mentioned that what they found in London in this 2011 study was two genotypes. Um, and the way they explain that is, and this is what we're witnessing, of course, um, uh, right now with uh, um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, is evolution is that the, the, as the organism, uh, in, this, in our case it's a virus, and in their case it was a bacterium, but as it is moving through multiple, multiple populations, every time it moves into a new host is another chance to, to replicate with changes. It's another um, opportunity to um, 
to acquire variants. So that's where the SNPs come in. Uh, and the SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism. Um, and it simply means the A, C, G, and T, uh, the Gattaca that we learn as the, the basic components of, of DNA. A SNP, a single nu- nucleotide polymorphism, polymorphism means a change of shape. It just means that in, if, if there was a C in a certain position, it gets switched. Um, and so just as we're doing now with, um, uh, with the coronavirus um, pandemic, we're monitoring those variants and using them to track the disease around the world. Well, so the, the, the geneticists have now done the same thing. Um, but their initial conclusion was this um, um, mutation that they found, the, the, the evolutionary change that they found in the organism, happened right in London. So they're were, they were working with um, a, a London burial site. What I realized in 2016 was that they had actually made an error. They were working with samples from two different cemeteries. One of them was the Black Death Cemetery, which uh, again fits our Boccaccio narrative of the plague arrived probably very late in 1348 in, in, in well, it probably arrived in the summer in, in England and spread to London by the end of the year. By th- early 1349, there is a major outbreak in London, but then it's over by 1350. So that um, burial site, it's actually called the Black Death Cemetery, was created because of all of these excess deaths. They knew plague was coming because they'd um, uh, gotten reports of it from, from elsewhere in Europe. They created the, um, the burial site ahead of time, had it consecrated as a Christian burial ground. Um, the plague came, there were massive deaths, and then they closed it, and then they sold the land. And that's why we can date this burial ground so well, is because we have the documents um, showing when it was created, and we also show uh, when it was closed. They sold it to a Cistercian abbey, which um, was being built um, anew after the Black Death, which created its own new burial ground. So the, the, um, uh, the genome that they had said was the internal, the, the, the London um, uh, variant of the disease. In fact, it's still found in London, um, obviously, but it's from an outbreak of plague that was probably 13 years later. So the circumstances of that second um, outbreak, um, uh, we call it the Pestis Secunda, uh, was completely different. Anyway, all of this is to say is that what I was now seeing is there's even more to the genetic story than the geneticists had recognized themselves. And so that's what got me to just go through all the data. Uh, I went through all the genetics data, I went through all of the, the supplementary materials, I went through all of the information on, on the modern strains that are related to the Black Death, and that's why there's all that information about marmots in there. The Issa cool story is another part of the story that is true, except it was misinterpreted. Um, the, the, there are certain facts about it, but um, how those facts get interpreted. And so, uh, so that's the gravesite in, in uh, Kyrgyzstan. 
and what what the sum of the I call it the biological archive what all this data shows is that there is a very old reservoir of plague in uh, Central Asia it seems to have its center in um, this mountain range called the Tian Shan um, which lies at the border between Kyrgyzstan and, and Western China and there you can still find strains of plague that are shockingly closely related to the Black Death strain. Again, for a comparison with uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the new strain that they've been talking about, the strain from the United Kingdom, uh, depending on, on how you, uh, what part of the genome you're counting, but they're talking about 17 SNPs or 23 SNPs that distinguish that from uh, kind of the, 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 the common variant that, that has spread throughout the world. That's in one year those variants have developed. Actually, we know that it's probably within the last six months or so that it's developed. There are strains of Yersinia pestis that are less than 17 SNPs away from um, what's called the Big Bang. In genetic terms, modern strains of Yersinia pestis aren't that far from the same bacteria that killed untold millions of people during the 14th century. But the small differences in the genetic code between different strains still offer clues about its spread and transformation. The technique used to study the history of plague is similar to what's used in genetic ancestry tests like 23andMe. Researchers find small variations in the genome of particular instances of Yersinia pestis and piece together a diachronic picture of how small mutations have occurred on the genome. Once there's a chronology, it becomes easier to see not only where those mutations probably occurred, but also roughly when they occurred and even the path that plague took from place to place. The metaphor of a big bang for Yersinia pestis refers to an event in which the bacteria spread in various directions from one source during a relatively short time, resulting in a dispersion of different local strains that each followed their own relatively separate genetic path. Think about how in 2019 SARS-CoV-2 suddenly began to spread, resulting in different variants like Delta and Lambda hypothesized to emerge in different places. Genetics helps us understand how one variant is distinct and find it elsewhere. The differences in coronavirus variants have had significant consequences for how the disease has spread, but much smaller genetic mutations that don't necessarily manifest as any significant change can also be tracked. The Big Bang is a term that the geneticists themselves, this is a, a, an, another group of geneticists that published in 2013, and what they did was do a big phylogenetic tree. What's a phylogenetic tree? Phylogenetic tree is a family tree. It's just, you know, if you did a family tree of your family, you would have uh, uh, your parents and your grandparents. Um, you would have cousins on there. And if you had kids, you would have your kids, grandkids, and so forth. A family tree shows relationships. That's what a phylogenetic tree is. And what the phylogenetic tree is, it shows that the Black Death that was experienced in Europe, which we now have, I don't know, something like at least 32 genomes from various parts of, of Europe, documenting uh, either the actual Black Death um, genome or later uh, 
later evolutionary stages of it within Europe. That is most closely related to these strains that are found um, in Central Eurasia. Genetics confirmed what had long been assumed about the origins of plague, only it called into question the chronology of the Black Death, which had fixated on the middle of the 14th century. And that's what I did with the genetics is say, wait a minute, the Big Bang had to have happened before the Black Death. I mean, that's just evolution, is that evolution won't tell you exactly um, a time frame, but it tells you what happened before and what happened after. And this was clearly a before story. Though genetics had raised new questions, many answers were waiting in the more familiar variety of sources historians tend to work with, medieval texts. Green identified a number of references to plague in sources from the period of the Mongol conquest of the 13th century. Then this was something that I literally just stumbled on in, you know, in the course of teaching a different course, which I was, I was developing a course on, on global history and was happening uh, to read uh, an excerpt from Rashid al-Din, who is a, um, a late 13th century historian who's working at the, the um, Ilkhanid um, court. That's, that's one of the Mongol um, territories. And he says in passing, oh yes, and there was, um, there was a siege um, at Lambasar. And at the end of the siege, plague broke up. Someone I had been collaborating with, I had actually edited um, his work in 2014, is a sinologist, um, Robert Himes at Columbia. And he had been working on what he felt was plague in um, uh, early Mongol China, or actually at the stage that the, the Mongols were coming in and trying to make China their own. So these are the first attacks and first sieges by the Mongols of these northern Chinese um, cities. And he was suggesting that, yes, there was this pattern, is that the Mongols would come and there would be a siege, and at the end of the siege, plague would break out. And that was just deeply puzzling. It was puzzling for, for Himes, it was puzzling for me. It was just like, well, why that temporal pattern? And, uh, and we had already, uh, in our discussions about his paper, we had already been uh, recognizing the probable role of mon- uh, marmots and so forth. But it was only when I discovered one other text that came out of the, um, the context of the Ilkhanate that I finally made the, the final piece uh, fell into place. Historians had debated whether the Mongols had in any sense contributed to the spread of bubonic plague, and Green argued they did, not in the form of human infections per se, but through what the Mongol armies carried with them on their campaigns. Us passing it from one human to another is a very, very unlikely scenario for long-distance spread of the disease. But clearly the genetics were saying, well, yes, it did spread a long distance, but what the genetics didn't really say was, again, the chronology. And so I was trying to look at the chronology. That siege at Lampasar that I mentioned happened in 1257. And I said, wait a minute, 1257 is really early uh, in terms of our narratives for the, the Black Death in, um, in, in Western Eurasia. But it's after the sieges that Bob Himes has documented for China. So it's got this middle position. And there were a couple of other clues that I was, I was finding, but 
my specialty is in Europe. I have Latin, I have Italian, I have German, I have French, but I don't have the Central Eurasian languages. And so I was, I was hitting up colleagues actually to help me and, 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 and give me ideas. And then I was using translations. And what I found was this amazing new document that was discovered in 2007. It was published in its original Persian. The Persian edition was published in 2010. And then an English translation was made um, in 2018. And this is a um, writer's name is um, Al-Shirazi. Like Rashid al-Din, in fact, he's a colleague of Rashid al-Din, he's working at the Ilkhanate um, court with the Mongols. And these are apparently his notes on the um, Western campaign of Hulagu. He's actually grandson of, of Genghis Khan. And he describes the siege of Baghdad, which happened just the year after the siege of, of Lambasar. And he says, in no uncertain terms, there was a massive outbreak of an epidemic at Baghdad. Bag the siege of Baghdad, the fall of Baghdad, is probably one of the most significant turning points um, in the history of the Islamic world. And aside from, from, from uh, one exception, what I realized is the siege of Baghdad had never been talked about in the context of the history of plague. And the other thing, and this was just amazing, um, and I still am, am somewhat of awe of finding this, is that unbeknownst to him, uh, Al-Shirazi also gave me a hint about what the mechanism of transmission was. Because what he said was, remember the, the uh, Tianshan Mountains? The Tianshan Mountains were, there were all of these marmots. The Tianshan Mountains in which there must have been some kind of spillover event. That somehow the marmot reservoir there had been disrupted and then plague is moving out of the, uh, out of the marmots into, into other species and into other contexts. What I realized is the hint that Al-Shirazi gave me is that right next to the Tianshan Mountains, there's incredibly fertile land from which um, a very precious kind of millet is grown. The Mongols were importing that millet on their campaigns with them all the way into Central Asia. And what do they do with this millet? They, um, they make a... Uh, it's kind of a superfood, apparently. I mean, this is even in the way that the 13th century sources describe it. It's this kind of superfood that if you make um, kind of an oatmeal-like mixture out of it and have a cup of that in the morning, that will give you all the energy you need for a whole day's work. And that's talking about soldiers, that um, you can actually feed um, uh, an army of soldiers with the, uh, the energy they, they get off this. Also, it can be used to brew beer, um, which is probably has its own benefits in terms of, of morale, if nothing else. And so that, that was the key. Um, that was the key, and that, that was my proposition, is that that's the mechanism by which the um, plague is, is actually moving. A fresh reading of the genetic evidence, coupled with a fresh reading of the historical record, were what ultimately led Green to the new narrative of the Four Black Deaths. To bring this all together then, what the Four Black Deaths is, is the genetic evidence says that there were four 
baby black deaths. Um, there are four new lineages of Yersinia pestis that get established from this spillover event. So plague is being knocked out of its, its, its marmot reservoir and then moving into new places, probably moving into new rodent um, hosts. And then getting transmitted um, a minimum of a thousand kilometers um, away and in some, some cases um, very far distance. And, and then that's the story of the Black Death that we usually tell is the Western story. That, and that's, that's, that's the, the gist of what I'm saying is the Black Death phenomenon, this spread of plague started a century, uh, almost a century and a half earlier than we previously believed. It spread farther than uh, we previously believed, and that we have probably had a lot of evidence already under our noses that we didn't know how to read. Because nobody prior to the 19th century knew that Yersinia pestis existed. And so I was trying to figure out how we can get the bacteria to talk to the human. Um, these are completely different methodologies, they're completely different um, approaches, but the, I started this work with the belief that if it's true, there must be a way to find the common truths. So if this is the story we're telling of the Black Death, that it starts in the 1340s, but the, the genetics is telling us a story that, well, it started before the, 14, uh, the 1340s, how do we get those stories to sync? And what I realized is the way you get them to sync is expand your geography, expand your chronology, um, and then start to work on, on, on different levels. There, there will be no universal causation. There will be no way that in all the circumstances that plague is moving through historically, there will be one set of circumstances that if we find that one thing, then we've answered um, all the questions. Um, but grain, um, grain distribution clearly is one of the things that Europeanists are need to go, going to go back because plague persists. It's not simply the, 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 the this is really a common misperception. It's the Black Death comes and then it, it then it just magically disappears. It didn't disappear. It lasted for another four hundred um, years in Europe. It lasted for another, well, I'm suggesting six hundred years in in the Middle East. There are many reasons why the story of the four black deaths is important, but perhaps most fundamental is it changes where our histories of the 14th century black deaths should begin. So what then do we do with the familiar Boccaccian narrative that is already ubiquitous in our world history textbooks? Do we have to change the Boccaccian narrative? I don't think we have to um, that much. That What Boccaccio experienced, what and what his contemporaries experienced was still real. It was still massively lethal that they didn't see the microscopic or, or kind of the vector level um, forces that was moving this around. That, that doesn't change our job as historians to take seriously their perception, their emotional reactions, their you know, political reactions, cultural reactions um, to, to what they're experiencing. But what I'm also saying is if this is what was happening in Europe, 
but other places were also experiencing the same disease. Maybe we should start asking some of those same questions for these other places. Um, and that's a huge issue that's on the table right now is, did plague spread into sub-Saharan Africa? There's an amazing um, proposition uh, by my colleague, Gerard Chouan, that plague reached West Africa, um, late 14th and into the 15th century, and may have caused similar demographic disruptions that contributed to the beginning of European involvement in the uh, West African slave trade. And if that is true, then that creates a completely different narrative for our entire understanding of you know, what will happen in the Americas as well. Um, that that is a, another spillover event, if you will, for that kind of depopulation. Uh, historians of China, I think, are going to have to go back and look at their own evidence. The amount of official histories and other kinds of documentation for China are phenomenal. But they don't have a Boccaccio. They don't have a contemporary who's writing what is essentially a literary account to tell a story. And that's the amazing work that, that I think Bob Himes has done, is to, from a variety of different sources, from uh, medical writings, from um, uh, these uh, official chronicles of the, the Chinese government and, and other sources as well, to piece together the experience of plague. Monica Green's work is the product of many years of research and speaks to questions with long histories. But its publication is very timely. For the past year and a half, people throughout the world have gained a new sense of what it means to live through events like the Black Death as a result of numerous changes ushered in by the COVID-19 pandemic. The two events are not necessarily as similar as they might seem at first glance. But nonetheless, the history of medieval plague has a lot to say about our present. The fact that, that my piece happened to appear in 2020 in the midst of another pandemic obviously is, is, is coincidence, but what it also means is we have been watching real time what the relationship is between a, a pandemic context and all kinds of other issues in terms of politics, in terms of economics, you know, uh, people's um, mental health, their sense of the future, their sense of everything. And COVID-19 uh, is causing a fraction of the mortality. But I, and I want to, to bracket that statement by, by stressing that's a big part of what we need to learn. The mortality level should not ever be our sole measure of the historical importance. Of, of any epidemic or pandemic situation, that we need to look at what we are doing as humans that is contributing to this. And this is, this is one of the things that, that I feel strongly about now is that pan, what distinguishes pandemics is it's not the, um, the, the pathogen involved. It's not the, the organism that, that, that causes disease. Because if you look historically, path, uh, pandemics have been caused by viruses, They've also been caused by bacteria. And it's not the organism um, itself that matters so much. It's how well the organism fits with the human context at the time. And boy, does SARS-CoV-2 fit perfectly with the modern world. 
It fits perfectly with aviation. It fits perfectly with our, you know, our just-in-time um, international uh, systems of, of, of supply. And it's exploited. It's ex- ex- it fits perfectly with our system of science, too, is that we have been using our understanding of, of, of science to monitor our reactions. The experience of the pandemic has sparked new interest in the history of disease. While science and medicine provide the dominant frameworks for understanding epidemics in our present, Green's work attests to the importance of the conventional methods of the historian as well. There's a lot of work that us regular historians need to be doing in the meantime. Um, and that's what, um, in fact, I'm, I'm involved in now, is uh, collaborating with um, specialists in, in the Islamic world um, to just go back and, and reread um, and translate primary sources. Well, I wonder if our listeners will concur that you are, as you just described yourself, a regular historian after hearing this uh, really unique uh, story of how you came to make this argument and where you think it's going. I mean, I think you just invited us to rewrite the history of plague, which was already a global history in some sense, um, but needs to be more global, less Eurocentric. And we need to go back to the sources, even though people have definitely looked at them. And I think this is a great example of how a well-studied event can still yield really new questions. I, I've been shocked. To learn more about Monica Green and her work on the history of plague, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll also find our 10-part series on the making of the Islamic world. It includes an installment about the Mongol conquest and their implications for Muslim societies that makes a great complement to this episode. I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for now. Thanks for joining me.